This episode is proudly brought to you by Liquid IV. Look, proper hydration isn't just necessary for people training for marathons or long-distance runs. It's important for everybody. Whether you're a parent or a podcaster, proper functional hydration is essential. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. I love how convenient they are. You put the little stick in your water and you're instantly hydrating twice as fast as water alone. It's that simple. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code INVISIBLE at checkout. That's 20% off anything when you shop better hydration today using promo code INVISIBLE at liquidiv.com. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. He was the man on the hill. He was the man that gave people jobs. He would do anything in the world for you. He looked at, there is that beacon, the pink top of his house. And now there's something missing from that. That pink top of that house used to have meaning. It was a beacon. On the evening of July 17, 2014, roommates Arthur Lee Brown and David McCoy were turning in for the night. They lived together in a house on Howard Street in the small but booming town of Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. In just the past five years, give or take, the community's population had exploded from around 18,000 to 24,000 people. Their modest hometown was quickly transforming into a small city. But wouldn't you know it, to look around at their neighborhood. Most of Arthur and David's neighbors were friends or family members. And 78-year-old Arthur and 66-year-old David were more than roommates too. They were also longtime friends. Arthur sometimes hired David, who had a learning disability, to help out at his cement company. And according to family members, two months prior, Arthur had also invited David to live with him as a personal favor. He always did favors like this for the people around him. That's just the sort of person Arthur was. He despised the thought of others out there suffering or having a hard go of it. So if someone in his inner social circle needed a hand, he was always the one to extend it. But that doesn't mean Arthur pitied David or saw him as a charity case. Like I mentioned before, they were true friends and they enjoyed one another's company. They also had a lot in common. As reported in the local newspaper, The News and Observer, Arthur's sister-in-law had recently passed away, as had David's mother. In their shared grief, they found support, empathy, and camaraderie with one another. In other words, they cared deeply about each other and took care of one another. On the night of July 17th, they were the only two at home, as Arthur's wife, Marion, had recently undergone surgery. She was staying with a sibling while she recovered, so Arthur and David only had one another for the evening, and perhaps they were satisfied with that arrangement. When the two men retired to their bedrooms for the evening and turned off the lights, it's possible the house was warm and cozy with the bond of their long friendship. But neither David nor Arthur would live to see the next morning, all because three other men, who they didn't even know, who were also close friends, ventured out into the cool evening air together on a dark, warped path toward murder. 
Back in 2007, Donovan Richardson was a freshman at Holly Springs High School in North Carolina. That year, he met a new classmate, Kevin Britt. Kevin was fairly new in town. He'd just moved to Holly Springs from New Jersey the year before. He was likely still getting settled into his new hometown and figuring out his place in the new school district. As it turned out, Donovan could have used a friend too. He was raised by a single mother and his grandparents. His father was never in the picture. So Donovan and Kevin were both in need of support and companionship. As a result, the two became instant friends. Around that same time, Kevin met another classmate, Gregory Crawford. They too clicked right away. Kevin, Donovan, and Gregory were all the same age, all in the same grade. They didn't attend all the same classes, however, that didn't matter because they were still best friends. And after graduation, they remained friends for years. As Kevin later explained it, um, We hung out all the time. We did most everything together. Um, helped him out. Helped me out. Um, we were cool. The truth is, the three men needed the extra support from each other as they were each going through personal challenges. Donovan had been accepted into Shaw University, but ended up dropping out after just one year. Around that same time, he also became a very young father when his first son was born. We don't know the name of that child's mother, but we do know his relationship with her ended poorly. And in January of 2014, he was arrested for assaulting her. His sentencing required mandatory enrollment in counseling and treatment specifically related to domestic abuse. By the end of that year, he was dating a woman named Tykea Alexander. And as of that summer, they had another baby on the way. More complications in an already complicated life. Meanwhile, in 2011, Kevin Britt was arrested for trying to break into a vehicle. He was charged and convicted on five counts of larceny. Not long after and over the course of several years, he faced even more petty offenses related to theft, drug and alcohol use, and in one instance, assaulting a government official. He bounced in and out of prison. Kevin served a 30-day sentence for assault and a multi-month sentence for larceny, both in 2012. Gregory got into legal trouble too, in the fall of 2012 and again in June of 2014. His charges included breaking and entering, larceny, obtaining property by false pretenses, and misdemeanor possession of stolen goods. None of the three young men were doing well, in the eyes of the law at least, or financially. But Kevin, Greg, and Donovan weren't alone in their struggles. They were still friends and still found ways to help each other out. Because Kevin had a car, but Gregory and Donovan didn't, he often gave them rides to and from work. By 2014, when they were in their early 20s, Kevin and Donovan were living together on and off again. Technically, Donovan dwelled with his mother, but sometimes he'd crash at Kevin's apartment for a few days or up to a week at a time. When Donovan and his girlfriend Tykea showed up at Kevin's front door, he'd roll out the red carpet for their welcome. He would regularly sleep on the couch so his friend could take the bed. Kevin, Donovan, and Gregory still did nearly everything together socialize, commute, sometimes even spend the night with each other. Everything, including criminal activity. A 
According to a North Carolina appeals court document, sometime in the summer of 2014, another local man named Kevin Kaiser posted several photos to social media. He had just come into a large sum of money, and he was splurging on guns and cars. He shared pictures of his flashy purchases online, presumably somewhere where Donovan Richardson, Kevin Britt, and Gregory Crawford could see the pictures and connect them back to Kaiser. According to Kevin Britt, Gregory was the one who then came up with the idea the three could rob Kaiser to make a quick buck. They put their plan into motion on the very early morning of July 3rd, 2014. Kevin was the getaway driver. Gregory and Donovan piled into his Toyota Echo and drove to Kaiser's home on Wagstaff Road, just outside of Fuquay Varina, North Carolina. Kaiser lived with his 28-year-old cousin, Justin Sneed who was home alone that night while Kaiser was out of town. It was after midnight and he was fast asleep, unaware that the three would-be robbers were just pulling onto his street. Kevin parked the car, then remained inside while Gregory and Donovan headed toward the house. They were dressed all in black, had ski masks covering their faces, and they were armed. Reportedly, they made their way into Sneed's bedroom. He then suddenly woke up when one of the intruders pointed his gun squarely at his face and asked, Where is all of Kevin's money? We don't actually know who spoke because Sneed had never met Gregory or Donovan. In addition to that, the face masks and the likely adrenaline rush he must have been feeling as he looked squarely down the barrel of the gun, Sneed had no way to tell the robbers apart. In fact, in a later statement to police, he got the intruders confused and at times he identified both Gregory and Donovan as the man who aimed the gun at him. The two tore through Sneed's home, grabbing everything of value they could find. During their search, they took three firearms, an AK-47, an AR-15, and another rifle. In addition to the guns, they also made off with several other items of debatable value, including clothing, shoes, cell phones, video games and consoles, and even a pit bull puppy named Polo. After about a half an hour, Gregory and Donovan headed back outside and got into Kevin's car, where he was still waiting for them. When Donovan came outside first, Kevin noted the size of their haul. Um, some shoes, uh, and uh, a puppy, and uh, a box full of uh, dog food. The men loaded everything into Kevin's trunk and the back seat of his car, and they'd taken so much from Sneed's home that Gregory had to make two trips to get everything out to the car. Once all of the loot was packed up and everyone was back inside the vehicle, Kevin shifted the car into drive and sped away. Donovan Richardson, Kevin Britt, and Gregory Crawford just successfully got away with armed robbery. But the next time they attempted the very same crime, things would go horribly wrong. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever had one of those nights when you just can't shut your brain off? It's like your mind is racing 100 miles a minute. No matter what you do, you just can't turn it off. Yeah, I've been there and actually I'm kind of there right now with all this media coverage about some recent events that impacted ours and several other podcasts. It's been very stressful. And the way I deal with the endless stress is through therapy. Look, if I've learned anything, it's that you sometimes just need to talk things out in order to process and move on. And if things have taken a turn in your life and the pressure and stress have you awake throughout the night, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online and designed to be convenient and flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash choir today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash choir. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Wild Grain. Ah, smell that? Yeah. Soup season is upon us, and everyone knows a good soup needs a great bread. That's why I absolutely love Wild Grain. You guys, Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. And hey, if you want a box of all bread, all pasta, or all pastries, you can have it. Seriously, I am in love with how easy it is to bake fresh bread and how every item from Wild Grain bakes from frozen in just 25 minutes or less. In fact, I've got a batch of my wife's famous Minnesota potato soup slow cooking back at the house as we speak and a Wild Grain sourdough rosemary garlic loaf at the ready for when I get home. If you want to give them a try, all you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com slash choir and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip, or cancel. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off your first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash choir to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash choir. That's wildgrain.com slash choir, or you can use promo code choir at checkout. Within a day or so of robbing Kevin Kaiser and Justin Sneed, Kevin Britt, Greg Crawford, and Donovan Richardson were eager to unload their stolen goods, which included the pilfered guns, clothes, shoes, video games, and the pit bull puppy named Polo. As far as the firearms went, Gregory already knew a potential buyer, a 19-year-old man named Gary McCoy. Donovan, Kevin, and Gregory all met Gary on a dirt road outside of town, ostensibly to buy weed from him but also to gauge his interest in the firearms. They gathered in a graveyard outside of a trailer park so they could have privacy for their illicit conversation. Um, we just went over there. Greg wanted to um, buy some uh, weed from uh, Gary. Um, and we went over there because we was going to come back to Fuquay and just chill. And uh, that was it. And uh, we, we went. We went there. We got we and um, we were just conversating. And at that time, did uh, the name A.L. Brown ever come up? Yes, sir. And can you tell us how that came up? Uh, they were just telling us um, how they had been in um, in, uh, in, a, in the guy's house, and um, that he had uh, he had a lot of things in his house, a lot of um, a lot of weapons in his house, and that's how I came up like that. Gary described these items, then suggested that he was interested in buying a gun that belonged to the man who lived in the house. That was Arthur Brown. Given that he mentioned this during a discussion about buying stolen guns, it seemed he was implying that Kevin, Gregory, and Donovan should rob Arthur. The tip must have been appealing, though it's unclear how much money the three men stood to gain from selling these additional stolen goods. But it couldn't have been that much, and when Kevin got his cut, it was just enough to cover gas money. 
So the thought of another score, with an eager buyer already lined up, had to be irresistible. At the very least, it must have made this venture into criminality feel somewhat worthwhile. Gary would eventually share even more information, though he didn't explicitly tell the three men Arthur Brown's address. He did, however, explain the location of the home in general terms. And after a few additional chats with Gary, Gregory, Donovan, and Kevin knew that Arthur lived in a pink house on a dead-end street in Fuquay, Verena. They also knew there was a white truck parked out front of his house with the words A.L. Brown printed on the side of it. Kevin later elaborated, Uh, I knew it wasn't too far away from the recreational center also. Um, and, uh, I know it was... It was on a, a, a dead-end road, um, and the house was on, uh, when you turn around, the house would be on your left-hand side. The description was of the house where Arthur Brown lived with his close personal friend and roommate, David McCoy. Yes, David McCoy has the same last name as Gary McCoy, the man who expressed interest in buying one of Arthur's guns. Now, we've done quite a bit of research and can't find any evidence that the two are actually related and it appears their shared surnames are merely a coincidence. Instead, Gary McCoy knew Arthur Brown through his aunt, who was renting a trailer from him. This seems pretty characteristic of Arthur, as he was known in the community as a generous, giving man who loved to take care of other people. If you needed money, he would set you up with a job. Need a place to stay, he would find you a home. He also threw huge parties every year where he'd invite all sorts of people from around town. And during that summer's get-together, Arthur had over 100 guests at his house, including friends, neighbors, and family members alike. Perhaps Gary attended this gathering with his aunt. If so, he would have seen Arthur's guns proudly on display in their case. Plenty of other guests likely spotted the firearms while there at the party as well. Regardless, whenever and however Gary saw the guns, and whenever he decided he wanted them for himself, it's clear that, in this case, Arthur's generosity had backfired. His kindness to Gary's aunt put him within Gary's orbit, and now Kevin Britt, Donovan Richardson, and Gregory Crawford saw him as a potential target. At some point after their meeting with Gary, Kevin drove Gregory and Donovan through Fuquay Verena until they spotted a house that matched the one described as Gary's. Kevin parked a little ways down the block, close enough that he could see Arthur's place, but not right in front of it. Gregory and Donovan then got out and walked toward Arthur's home, but they returned after about 15 minutes empty-handed. Because Kevin remained in the car, he couldn't know exactly what Gregory and Donovan were up to. But sometime later, on the morning of Wednesday, July 16th, Arthur Brown woke up and noticed something odd. According to a statement later given to a local ABC News reporter, the security cameras in his home had been mysteriously disconnected. Arthur told Carl Diggs, his nephew who lived nearby, and before long, they had the cameras back up and running. We don't know for sure if the security camera disconnection had anything to do with Kevin, Donovan, and Gregory's visit. Perhaps they just experienced a coincidental glitch at some point after they cased Arthur's home. But we do know that just one more day passed before the three would return. And it was close to midnight the night of July 17th, or maybe just after 12 on the 18th when Kevin pulled up to Arthur's house. 
Once again, he remained in the car while Gregory and Donovan went inside. Then Kevin waited and waited and waited. He eventually started to get nervous and tried calling both of the men, but neither picked up. Finally, after Gregory and Donovan had been inside for about 45 minutes, they came back outside. Both of the men were carrying guns, including one they'd just seized from Arthur Brown. They didn't look injured, but they also weren't in the high spirits you might expect from a pair of robbers who'd just successfully pulled off their second break-in. In fact, when Kevin looked at his good friend Donovan Richardson, he was stricken by how unsettled Donovan suddenly seemed. Uh, he was sad, nervous. As Kevin put distance between his car and Arthur's house, Gregory asked him a series of odd questions. Yeah, I said that um, he asked me if he um, if I heard any um, gunshots outside the house, um, and he asked me that um, he asked me if I heard um, any uh, any dogs barking, and then that's when he told me that he had um, he had shot somebody in the house. Donovan was quiet and wasn't saying anything. So when Gregory suggested that they all head back to his house, Kevin followed his lead. There they stashed the freshly stolen guns before Kevin and Donovan went back to Kevin's place to try to get some sleep. At some point during the night, Donovan made another comment that helped Kevin make more sense of his recent moodiness. He said that he too had shot someone. Did he say anything about what that person did uh, 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 before he shot him? He said um, he thought um, the guy was going to shoot him first. If Donovan was truly bothered by the possibility that he may have just killed someone, he didn't let that stop him from offloading the stolen goods. Within just a few hours of the robbery, he borrowed Kevin's phone so he could use Facebook Messenger to reach out to prospective buyers. These messages were boastful, proud even. Hardly the language you'd expect from someone suffering a dark night of the soul. One such message read, I got a 22 and a 9. LOL, I'm strapped like Rambo. And another message, Know anybody who need a strap? I got some firepower on the market. Maybe it was just bravado, but Donovan didn't seem bothered by the night's violence. He was alone in that regard. Back in Fuquay Varina, an uneasiness settled over Howard Road. Arthur Brown's nephew, Carl Diggs, lived across the street from him, and all throughout the night, his dogs kept barking. That was mildly concerning, and the next morning, Carl and some other neighbors only grew even more concerned. Arthur and David McCoy were usually outgoing and sociable. They'd never start their Saturday without first reaching out to their loved ones by calling people and chatting informally. But nobody heard from either man all morning long soon family members began checking in. The phone in Arthur's home rang and rang, and yet no one picked up. It was acutely out of character for either man to be non-responsive. None of it made any sense. Finally, Carl and another neighbor, Ruby Bullock, decided to check on the two men. Like Carl, Ruby was family, Arthur's sister-in-law. Once Arthur's wife, Marion, complained to her that she too hadn't heard from him, Ruby knew something wasn't right. As soon as Carl and Ruby arrived at Arthur's home, they found a sliding glass door had been left unlocked and a window was broken. Ruby went inside and headed straight for her brother-in-law's bedroom. She found Arthur inside and yelled, Carl? Uh, Carl? 
Carl heard her shouting and ran through the house, straight into Arthur's bedroom. There he found Arthur lying face down halfway in bed, as though he had been kneeling. He'd clearly been shot in the back. The scene was disturbing and unsettling, but Ruby and Carl still hadn't found Arthur's roommate, David McCoy. So Carl went searching while Ruby dialed 911. It looks like he's bleeding. It looks like he's dead. He ain't moving. As Ruby gave the emergency operator the pertinent information, Carl reached David's bedroom. There he saw David in his daybed, but unlike Arthur, he never even had the chance to get up. In fact, he may not have even woken up. His head was still on the pillow, and his sheets and blankets tucked up underneath his chin. It would have been a peaceful scene, were it not for the bullet hole in his head. When crime scene investigators arrived, they confirmed what Ruby and Carl already knew. Both men were dead, and the culprits had ransacked almost every room in the house. As an agent with the CCBI, or the City County Bureau of Identification, Ashley Foster later explained, This is the front formal living room door. This door was open, so this door was processed. Um, There's a door right here that comes from the basement to the upstairs area. That door was uh, processed as well. Um, There was damage to this door as well, as if someone had forced entry into the the door. And then where did you proceed after that? The... There's these two bedrooms. There were uh, dresser drawers in, um, open within the room, so those were processed. Um, there were a um, few cabinets open in the kitchen, and those were processed as well. And uh, photographs, and I mean, photographs were taken throughout the whole house. Sure. Um, so there was also uh, in this master bedroom. There were also drawers open in that. Um, room and in this rare sitting room there were also doors open okay and those were all processed for latent evidence the evidence suggested that david and arthur were murdered in a robbery gone wrong arthur had been shot twice in the chest and possibly once in the hand the investigators couldn't conclusively say for sure given the way he was lying on the bed they speculated that he may have heard gregory and donovan breaking in He might have even grabbed for his pistol as he climbed from the bed, only for one of the intruders to shoot him first. That first shot would have likely killed him on its own, as it penetrated his pulmonary artery and his aorta. According to North Carolina's chief medical examiner, Dr. Deborah Radish, He was breathing air and blood into his lungs from the injury. The second bullet screamed through his heart, an artery, a lung, and his spleen, finishing him off. Injuries on his fingers were consistent with that third bullet grazing them, but Radish could not definitively say that was the cause of the damage. There were also three shell casings discovered in his room. His wallet was also missing, as were his guns. As for David McCoy, he was shot once in the face, the fatal injury killing him while he slept. He certainly wasn't a threat to either of the intruders. Still, the violence felt senseless, While the evidence supports the notion that one of the intruders may have first fired upon Arthur when he reached for his gun, they had absolutely no reason to kill David while he slept. The man didn't pose a risk to anyone. Then there's the robbery itself. Besides the guns, Gregory, Donovan, and Kevin took just $150 cash, a paltry sum to kill two men over. The victim's friends and relatives were stricken by the horrific and meaningless violence. 
Liz Allen, a member of David McCoy's family, told a local news crew, quote, My heart hurts because somebody had to come and do this to two gentlemen. I don't mess with nobody ever. It's just sad. During Arthur Brown's funeral a week later, more locals spoke out about Arthur's kind, giving spirit. The funeral home director running the service spoke about how he was only able to open his business because of a generous financial gift from Arthur, one he didn't even need to ask for. And a local minister talked about how his family stayed with Arthur and his wife rent-free for a year while they searched for a home. Other attendees were angry. The News and Observer reported that David McCoy's nephew, James McCoy, vented during Arthur's service. I hope they catch the dogs who did this. I pray they don't get no sleep. I pray when they look in the rearview mirror, they see Arthur and David behind them. I pray when they cross the street, someone walks up to them and says, I know what you did last summer. And during his eulogy, Arthur's son, Kenneth Brown, issued a call to action. I implore you, please, everybody out there, to the news media, if you know anything, please do not keep it to yourself. Please share it with law enforcement, because I don't want anyone to feel the pain and the spirit of loneliness that I feel right now. While the grieving families continued begging for answers, the murders became a big news story. But for Donovan, Kevin, and Gregory, life continued on as if normal. The day after the homicides, they attended a cookout with Donovan's girlfriend, Tykea Alexander. They then visited a racetrack together. There, they sold the stolen guns. Again, we don't know how much money they actually made from the deal, but Kevin's share of the proceeds was only about $100. That's counting the sale of the firearms and the $150 cash the men stole from Arthur Brown's home. Now, no amount of money is worth a human life, but this is an astonishingly low amount for two possible murders. And we say possible here because apparently neither of the men were sure if they had even killed anyone. While Donovan knew he shot someone during the robbery, he still didn't know if his victim survived until he saw the news reports. Days passed before Donovan, Kevin, and Gregory were watching TV together along with Tykea and Kevin's roommate, Jamila Gilliam. That's when they all saw the story on the double homicide. Donovan was reportedly stunned to learn of David McCoy's death. He told Kevin, quote, I didn't know two people were in that house. I saw two people dead on the news. It seemed this proved to be a turning point for the lifelong friends. Kevin, Donovan, and Gregory had stood together through all sorts of challenges, but after Donovan and Kevin learned their companion had committed cold-blooded murder, shooting an unarmed man in his sleep, and another just moments after he awoke and desperately tried to defend himself, a rift developed. And um, did, you, did you see Greg much after that? Uh, I only seen him one time. But did you continue to hang out with Donovan? Uh, yeah, me and Donovan, we still ain't hung out uh, often, but we, we was doing our own thing. Okay. While the friendship fractured, the police dug into their investigation. First, they checked the tapes from Arthur's home security cameras. Unfortunately, they didn't contain any usable footage, as it seems they weren't even running properly the night of the break-in. But they did manage to pull fingerprints from the crime scene. And before long, they identified their three top suspects, Gregory Crawford, Kevin Britt, and Donovan Richardson. 
From there, they moved rapidly. And just over two weeks after the murders of Arthur Brown and David McCoy, early on the morning of Saturday, August 2nd, they descended upon Gregory's Street. The sun hadn't even risen yet on the day when they took him into custody. Later on that same morning, they apprehended Kevin as well. The next day, Donovan turned himself in. This episode is proudly brought to you by Fabric by Gerber Life. You know, as a parent, you've had to learn so many new skills to provide for your family. Trust me, I'm someone who read just about every book I could get my hands on about becoming a new parent. And it seems like they cover just about everything, from feeding to sleep schedules. But the one thing I almost never saw included in these books was how to protect your family's financial future. Fabric by Gerber Life provides an easy, one-stop shop for your family's financial needs, offering high-quality term life insurance policies plus other financial solutions in one easy online hub. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric also has policies that fit your family and your budget, with high-quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash invisible. That's meetfabric.com slash invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Rocket Money. All right, let's get vulnerable for a second. I just opened up Rocket Money and I spend, and get ready for this, $3,161 per year on subscriptions. Yeah, including $315.45 for an annual membership to get this, a rowing machine that I returned three days after buying it because it was broken. Yikes, I totally forgot to cancel that one. This is why I love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills, all in one place. Look, most people think they're spending $80 on their monthly subscriptions, when in reality that number is closer to $200. When you're signed up for so many things, like streaming services you used to watch one show or that free trial delivery you no longer use, it's easy to lose track of what you're paying for, like that rowing machine. Anyhow, I love it because you can not only use Rocket Money to easily cancel the subscriptions you no longer want with just a press of a button, Rocket Money also lets you monitor all of your expenses in one place and even recommends custom budgets based on your past spending. So, stop wasting your money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com invisible. That's rocketmoney.com invisible. Rocketmoney.com invisible. Now that all three culprits were finally in custody, the police reviewed their cell phone records and a laptop hard drive. In no time at all, they found the Facebook messages selling the stolen goods. There were also several photographs that showed the items the men took from both robberies, the guns and, of course, Polo, the pit bull puppy. It seemed as if Kevin, Gregory, and Donovan's fates were cleanly sealed, but they still had a choice to make one with potentially fatal consequences. They were each charged with first-degree murder, a crime that, if convicted, could earn them the death penalty in the state of North Carolina. 
Rather than risking execution, Kevin Britt and Gregory Crawford both accepted a plea agreement. They each conceded that they were guilty of first-degree murder, robbery with a dangerous weapon, and burglary. In exchange, they received lighter sentences and a promise that they would not face the death penalty. As part of his plea, Gregory confessed that he broke into the house with Donovan by his side. Together, the two men crept into Arthur Brown's room. When Arthur pulled a gun on the men, Donovan shot him in response. Then Gregory took the dead man's weapon and used it to murder David. It's still unclear why he felt the need to shoot a sleeping elderly man in his bed, but at least police now knew who'd pulled the trigger in each homicide. That is, if they wanted to take Gregory at his word. Donovan didn't corroborate this account. He maintained that he was innocent of both of the killings. During his questioning, he even pointed the finger at Arthur Brown's wife, Marion, and his nephew, Carl Diggs. Remember, Marion wasn't home that night as she was recovering from a recent surgery, and Carl was one of the people who first found Arthur and David's bodies. According to court records, Donovan suggested to investigators that Marion may have had Arthur killed for their insurance money, and Carl might have committed the homicide at her behest. As near as we can tell, the police never took Donovan's theories seriously, nor did they investigate them. While choking back tears, Arthur's son Kenneth testified, quote, Just been a really difficult time. Miss my father every day, and it's just so hard that he was taken away because someone had to come and take what he had. Through his tears, Kenneth also reminded the jury of Arthur's generous giving nature. He speculated that if Kevin, Gregory, and Donovan were really that hard up for cash, they could have simply asked Arthur for help. And you know what? He probably would have given it. Nobody had to die in this case. This and other testimony moved the judge to sentence Gregory to two consecutive life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole, which must have made Donovan Richardson nervous. If Gregory was going to spend the rest of his days behind bars, even with a plea bargain in the mix, what chance did he have? Nonetheless, during his arraignment, Donovan offered up a plea of not guilty. His trial began a year and a half after Gregory's hearing in late 2017. It took nearly three weeks to select a jury, which isn't necessarily unusual in a capital punishment case. It can be difficult for the courts to find jurors who are willing to send a defendant to their death, should the evidence support such a recommendation. When testimony began, prosecutors called in crime scene investigators, medical examiners, and even people from Donovan's social circle— former friends who were now cooperating with the authorities to bring him to justice. This list included Kevin's own roommate, Jamila Gilliam. Remember, Donovan occasionally stayed with Kevin Britt and Jamila at their apartment, and he slept at their place the night after the Howard Road murders. After his arrest, but before his trial began, Donovan called Jamila with a request, help provide him with an alibi. But Jamila wasn't willing to lie to the authorities. She knew Donovan wasn't home at the time of the murders, and she was willing to say as much on the stand. So, two days before she was supposed to testify, she got another call. This was from one of Donovan's friends, a man named Damien Jacobs. At the time, Damien was in jail on charges that were unrelated to the break-in and murders, but apparently his loyalty to Donovan was strong enough for him to involve himself in this case too, 
especially when Donovan told him to. Hey, handle that for me. On the phone, Damien told Jamila to plead the fifth and refused to testify. Now, we don't have the full transcript from their call, so we can't be sure of what else was said. But Jamila later testified that she didn't find this call to be threatening. But nonetheless, prosecutors charged Damien with witness intimidation. This was not a good look, and it didn't help Donovan's argument that he was actually innocent of the charges. But the Jamila Gilliam saga wasn't even the most dramatic twist during Donovan's trial. That came from the prosecution's star witness, Donovan's longtime friend, his sometimes on-again, off-again roommate who always had his back, the man he did everything with. Statement call its next witness. Thank you, Your Honor. State will call Kevin Britt. In a live stream of Donovan Richardson's trial, you can see his expression when Kevin is called to the stand. He doesn't react with surprise, which makes sense, as Donovan already knew Kevin would serve as the prosecution's key witness. This wasn't a shock to him. Still, if you watch him sitting beside his attorney, blank poker face firmly in place, you have to wonder what he was thinking. How in the hell he made sense of his former best friend's betrayal. On the stand, Kevin wasn't particularly talkative. When Wake County Prosecutor Matt Lively asked him a question, he mostly responded with one or two word answers. Good morning, sir. Um, would you please state your name for the jury? Kevin Britt. And Mr. Britt, um, where are you currently residing? Um, in Holly Springs, North Carolina. Uh, okay, where, where, where are you currently residing? Are you currently residing in the Wake County Jail? Oh, yes, sir, in Wake County Jail. And have you been there since August 2nd of 2014? Oh, yes, sir. This arrangement meant that most of the evidence that came from the prosecution or defense attorneys was either verified or disputed by Kevin's testimony. They would state a fact aloud in the courtroom, and Kevin would either confirm or deny if it was accurate. And did you go back to Howard Road? Yes, sir. And can you tell us, uh, did, did you did you kind of pull around the same way? That is, go up by the house, turn around, and come back and park? Yes, sir. And you park a couple houses away? Yes, sir. Right. It was a long and tedious process, but as the minutes and hours ticked by, eventually Kevin's story made it onto the record. Kevin's account is mostly the same as what we've already covered. He talked about how he first met Donovan and Gregory and how they became fast friends. He also discussed his prior criminal history and recounted the two robberies he participated in with his friends, the one at Kevin Kaiser and Justin Sneed's house, and the one that ended in the deaths of Arthur Brown and David McCoy. Kevin reaffirmed that he was merely the getaway driver for each of these crimes, explaining that he didn't go inside the house during either. He didn't know what went down during the burglaries themselves, and he certainly didn't know who actually pulled the trigger in the double homicide. But his testimony still painted a clear picture of Donovan's guilt. And at one point, while he was off the record and the jury wasn't present, he told the judge about Donovan's post-robbery confession to shooting a man. Did the defendant pull you aside and make any statements to you about what had happened inside the house? Yeah, yeah um, he pulled me to the side. And we went outside um, for a moment. He just said that um, he, said he thought that he shot somebody and that he, um, he didn't know if he possibly killed him. It might sound like Kevin was completely throwing one of his oldest friends under the bus here. But let's keep in mind, Kevin didn't commit the murders. And to all appearances, he never realized two people would ultimately wind up dead when Donovan and Gregory broke into the house on Howard Street. Perhaps he was wrestling with his conscience. 
But he also had something to gain from these statements. See, Kevin testified against Donovan as part of his plea deal. His ability to get a shorter sentence was fully contingent upon his own testimony in the case. So when Donovan's attorney got a chance to question Kevin, he was quick to suggest that Kevin's testimony might be biased and therefore untrustworthy. After all, he'd had a history of dishonesty in the past, a tendency to say what he had to to get out of trouble, as Donovan's defense attorney, Rick Gammon, drove home during questioning. And when you were arrested, they took you into a little room, didn't they? Yes, sir. And the law enforcement officers, they asked you a series of questions, didn't they? Uh, they did, but I didn't answer, sir. Well, the truth of the matter is you did answer some of them, didn't you? <coughs> uh, I never signed anything. Well, no, but, well, you, you didn't. You didn't sign anything, but they told you they wanted to talk to you about the murder of Mr. Brown and Mr. McCoy, didn't they? Yes, sir. They told you they wanted to talk to you about the burglary that occurred on Howard Road on the 18th of July, didn't they? Yes, sir. They asked me they wanted to talk about the robbery. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And you told them you didn't know anything about that. Yes, sir. That's what you said, then. Yes, sir. And in fact, you told them, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to know anything about that. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay. And you indicated that you didn't have anything to do with that, did you? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, according to your testimony to you lied. <laughs> Is that correct? I didn't lie. I didn't have a lawyer present with me. Well, you know, I realize that you say you didn't have a lawyer present, but you did make statements to the police. Is that correct? Uh, I told them I didn't have anything to do with that. And that was a lie, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. So you lied. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And you lied to protect yourself, did you not? Yes, sir. Now, again, we don't know if Kevin was telling the truth when he took the stand against Donovan. It's possible that he was downplaying his own involvement in order to make himself look more innocent. Or he might have been telling the truth about his own actions, but skewing the accounts of Donovan to make him look more guilty. After all, even though Kevin had already accepted a plea deal, he hadn't been formally sentenced yet, and he wouldn't learn how much prison time he'd have to serve until after Donovan's trial. The implication here being that the length of his term would depend on how well he testified against Donovan. So he had a motive to say what the prosecutors wanted to hear, and whether or not that was strictly the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth remains to be seen. And this is telling, because to this day, no one knows for sure who killed Arthur Brown and David McCoy. We know that Donovan and Gregory were both inside of that house, but there's no hard physical evidence to indicate who actually pulled the trigger or why. During police questioning, Gregory did confess to killing David, and the crime scene investigation suggested Arthur grabbed his gun when the robbers first entered his room. So Donovan could have been telling the truth when he said he only fired upon Arthur to, quote, defend himself, a detail that was consistent with Gregory's confession. But prosecutors argue that none of that mattered, that under the eyes of the law, he was a murderer, even if he was shooting, quote, in self-defense. He was culpable even if he didn't shoot anybody, even if he was just along for the ride, while, say, Gregory committed both murders, as prosecuting attorney Howard Cummings said during his closing statements. In very general terms, and I think I'm not saying that this is is what the evidence shows, but understand in very general terms that if the two 
If two people go into that house and one of them has a gun, whatever happens in that house is the criminal responsibility of both of them because they went, they joined in a plan to do a robbery, to go in a house in the middle of the night and somebody has a gun. Following these statements, the attorneys on each side rested their cases. And after a multi-day deliberation period, the jury ruled that Donovan Richardson was guilty on all charges, including the first-degree murders of Arthur Brown and David McCoy, along with first-degree burglary, robbery with a dangerous weapon, conspiracy to commit a first-degree burglary, and conspiracy to commit a robbery with a dangerous weapon. Which left just one more major question. Would Donovan receive the death penalty? This question was more complicated than it seemed on the surface. You see, Fuquay Verena is in Wake County, North Carolina, and until recently, Wake County was responsible for a significant number of death row inmates. And at the time of Donovan's trial, they still ruled on more death penalty cases than any other county in North Carolina. But they hadn't sentenced any individuals to be executed since 2007, more than 10 years before Donovan's case. In that time, eight defendants were given life sentences in lieu of capital punishment. Political advocates say there are actually a lot of reasons for this, but many believe it's reflective of shifting public attitudes about the death penalty. Juries generally don't want to be responsible for sending a person to their death, and understandably so. On the other hand, Donovan was legally responsible for killing two people for the pettiest of reasons. The senseless violence might well have been enough to offset the jurors' possible discomfort with the death penalty. Attorneys for the prosecution and the defense both delivered impassioned arguments for and against capital punishment, but the jury only deliberated in this case for about 90 minutes. And when they returned, they followed the trend of the past decade, sentencing Donovan Richardson to life in prison. In the end, he would not be executed but Judge Graham Shirley still had harsh words for the defendant in court. When you leave this room today, you're going to be taken back to your jail cell. Your belongings are going to be cleared out and you're going to be driven to central prison. And when you lay your head to rest tonight, that door is going to close and let box is going to sound. You have a life expectancy of 52.35 years, so I want you to know for the next 27.5 million minutes, of your life, that is where you are going to remain, never to be a free man again. And file 14 CRS 217792 for the murder of David Eugene McCoy, the defendant is sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. And 14 CRS 217793, the defendant is sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. When the jurors presented their reasoning for the sentence, they didn't cite shifting political trends or ethical concerns about capital punishment. Instead, they said they were swayed by extenuating circumstances. They cited Donovan's youth and how he was just 24 years old at this point and the fact that the murders weren't necessarily premeditated. They conceded that he may have been under duress when he committed the crime. In everyday terms, that means he didn't have much choice but to fire when Arthur allegedly reached for his gun. Though in retrospect, he could have chosen to, you know, not break into Arthur's home in the first place and rob him. Jurors were also moved by the fact that Donovan's two young sons, a three-year-old and a seven-year-old, would have grown up without a father if he was executed. And they referenced how Donovan's own father lacked any involvement or acknowledgement of his son. 
Sadly, from the sound of it, Donovan Richardson didn't have much of a support network other than his friends. So it's unsurprising that he stood by Gregory Crawford and Kevin Britt through thick and thin. That is, until they all crossed an ethical line and became murderers. Gregory and Donovan are both currently serving out life sentences. And as of the recording of this episode, Kevin, thanks to his willingness to testify, is more than halfway through his 12 to 18 year sentence. A steep price to pay for standing by your friends. Now, generally speaking, friendship can be amazing. It's healthy to have people around you who support you, who help you out and give you an outlet when you want to have fun or vent. But friendship can also be extremely dangerous. And the wrong person might inevitably send you down that bad road that ultimately winds up ruining your life. And even good friends can put you at risk. David McCoy was only killed because he was living with Arthur Brown. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. In turn, Arthur only died because he did a favor for an acquaintance who knew Gary McCoy, who in turn knew Gregory Crawford. All of this drives home the uncomfortable truth. Even when they're well-meaning, the people you associate with can change your life, for better or for worse, or bring it to an abrupt, premature, and tragic end. 